This is the uh, fifth of six messages that I've given on giving away our faith. It uh, hardly needs to be said that the uh, Great Commission is still in effect. Uh, We know that. It's never been rescinded. Our Lord has told us that uh, we are to make disciples of all nations. Uh, The problem is not knowing that uh, we have that task. It's how to go about it. We know that we, we have come upon the ultimate good thing, or rather the ultimate good thing has come upon us. The Lord has found us, and he has loved us. And now how do we go about sharing that, that relationship that we have with others? Somehow we know that there has to be a better way of doing it than, uh, than we've been doing it. We are, I think, uh, put off by some of the standoffish methods that... Uh, some Christians use the fluorescent uh, Jesus bumper stickers and the uh, uh, the uh, mow them down techniques of, of some people. We we know that that evangelism ought to take place not in the realm of sales technique, getting a patter down pat, learning how to uh, give a broad smile, how to somehow uh, impress people. Uh, with with the the technique itself, we know that it, it that evangelism ought to operate in the realm of personal relationships. We know that, but the question is, how do we go about doing it? I I think I mentioned some years ago going into a a, a dorm uh, at the university where I used to work with students, talking to a number of students about getting about the business of sharing their faith with people in the dorm. And they're telling me that they plan to do that the next quarter, but that this quarter they were writing a position paper. And uh, I can remember how shocked I was. Uh, And I'm sure my response was not too good. I I said, position paper? It's already been written, friend. Here it is. Let's let's get about the task. But uh, in thinking back on that, I think I understand a little better what they were trying to say, that they really wanted to go about it the right way. They wanted to do it as the Lord did it. And uh, they wanted some help. Now, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn how to more powerfully and in a more penetrating way uh, give away our faith, make our faith count. Now, as I've said before, there's a direct correlation, I think, between worship and witness. If, if we don't know God, if we don't love him, then our witness always comes across as, as inauthentic. It doesn't seem real. People, It's just words, made-up words. But if we know God and we love God, then our witness comes across with warmth and with, with reality, and people sense that there's something authentic about what we're saying. And so we have to begin with worship, centering our lives upon God, getting to know him, walking with him, practicing his presence through the day, fellowshipping with him, counting upon him. And then our witness begins to come across with, with authenticity. We talked about Abraham and the fact that he, he, he worshipped at his little altar and he warmed his heart before God there. And then he went out into the, into the world and brought the Canaanites in out of the cold to, to warm them themselves at his altar. That's where it begins. Someone asked uh, John Wesley once, why crowds were drawn to hear him preach. His comment was, if you set yourself on fire, people will love to come and see you burn. 
Uh, he wasn't talking about evangelistic zeal. He was talking about a, the warmth and the love of, of God that we begin to experience when we know God, when it's real. Now, that's where we have to begin. And when we begin there, certain things begin to happen. The first is that we begin to take on the character of the one that we love. You always look like the person you love. And uh, as you worship the Lord and you follow him, you begin to act like he acts and behave as he acts in, in the world. And people will look at you as they looked at Israel and say, uh, what, a, what a wise uh, people this is. Remember Deuteronomy 4, the passage we looked at. What people are like this with a God so near to them and have, have, uh, have so much wisdom? We, we learn from the Lord a skill at living life, the capacity to cope and, and to make our way through life successfully. And that's appealing to people. It's a righteousness that comes out of a right relationship with, with Christ. And secondly, if, if we love God and we worship God, we begin to love people as God does. We begin to see them through his eyes. Remember Jonah. God loved the people in Nineveh who didn't know up from down, who were, who were ignorant. And we begin to see them the same way as, as we walk with him. Uh, we, we see them not as the enemy, but people that have been victimized by the enemy, people that are lost and lonely and, and desperate. Uh, Carolyn and I were... Actually, she brought up the subject, and I was mostly listening and making comments, but she was, she was reflecting on the number of, of, of lost children today, those that have been uh, snatched and seduced away from their, from their parents. And uh, so many people today are, are, are rightly concerned about what's happening in our, in our culture. Uh, the dairies now, as you know, are publishing pictures of these lost children on the milk cartons and and uh, grocery stores have picked up this practice, putting their pictures on grocery bags. This is a good thing. But have you ever thought about the fact that the world is full of runaways? That's, that's true of all of us. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve, uh, uh, well, God told Adam and Eve not to listen to strangers. Don't, uh, don't take up with, with, uh, with aliens. But they did. They listened to the lie. And... Uh, People ever since have been seduced into running away from God. The, the world is full of runaways. And we need to seek and to save them and, and to bring them back. We're involved in a, in a rescue operation. And we need to see those people as our Lord Jesus uh, sees them, saw them, as, uh, as lonely and as, as lost. Not as, as the enemy, but as those that have been victimized by the enemy. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen the video by the Night Ranger, Sister Christian. Have you seen that? I had heard the song for months before the video came out. It's been out for some, uh, some weeks. But it is one of the most powerful presentations of, of the lie that I've ever seen. It depicts a young lady in a Catholic high school, and it's black and white when the video begins. And uh, the, the nuns all look very austere and grim, and they're all dressed in very, uh, they look sinister, actually. And, and the young ladies in the school are all dressed very primly and properly, and they, actually it's, uh, their, their dress is very uh, old and shabby-looking, and everything is black and white and, and dark, and 
dreary. And this young lady looks out of the window and she sees her friends uh, running out the front door and piling into a convertible with a couple of guys and they go racing off. But when she looks out of the window, everything is, is in color. And it's beautiful. Life looks so good. And if you listen to the words carefully, they, basically what the words say is, Sister Christian, you won't find Mr. Right unless you give up your virginity tonight. That's, that's, that's the message of the video. But what is so powerful is the way in which it's presented, the black and white world in which she lives, which she can leave if she gives up her virginity. She'll find Mr. Right, and the world will become technicolor. That's the lie. And, and, you know, some of us sit on the other side of the desk, and we see the results of, of these young, the things that happen to people who believe the lie, the despair and the loneliness and the hurt and the hunger and the unsatisfied longings, you see. Somehow we've got to learn to see people that way, even those that are hostile to us and hostile to God. They're lost. They're runaways. And we need to see them with the love of Christ. Now, that's what worship will do for you. You begin to see people as God sees them and love them as he loves them. Now, the third byproduct of, of worship, as we, uh, as we saw last week, is a reliance upon God's resources. God is ordering history to save the world. That's the key to history. There are a lot of different theories of history. But uh, the one theory that makes sense out of all the details of, of human experience is that God is working through history to bring salvation to the world. That's why he brought into being the, the nation of Israel, as we saw. Through this great nation, he began to make proclamation to the rest of the world. That's why he put Israel where he put her, in the particular portion of the world that she was assigned. God says he puts boundaries around all of the nations. So they can reach after him and, and find him. He controls all the events of history. He raised up the Assyrians to scourge the uh, northern kingdom when, they, when they, did not, uh, they were not faithful to their missionary task. He raised up the Babylonians to uh, get the Assyrians out of the picture so that his, his people could have some freedom. When they refused to fulfill their missionary task, he raised up the Babylonians. And then he raised up the Persians to scourge the Babylonians. Then he raised up the Greeks to... To, uh, to take care of the, of the uh, Persians, as we saw last week. And as the Greeks began to spread, they spread their language so that uh, the world literally became a one-language world, and so the gospel could be proclaimed in one language everywhere. And then the Romans came along, and they, they developed what's called the Pax Romani, the peace of Rome, and they kept things calm so that the gospel could be proclaimed. And they built this incredible road system all over the world so the gospel, so the missionaries could travel and take the gospel everywhere. That's the key to history. I wish somebody to write a history book someday and develop that theme, that God is at work in history to bring about salvation, which relieves us of the pressure of feeling that it all depends upon us. So we can relax. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to feel that it all depends upon us. We don't need to be argumentative. We don't need to uh, collar people. We don't have to mow them down. We, as his friend of mine says, we don't have to Van Gogh them. We don't have to chew their ear off. You, you, you can rest. You can relax. You can enjoy it because God is the one who orders not only the big events, mega history, the, the, you know, the, the, the big happenings in history, but all the little details of our life to get us at the right place at the right time so we can make a significant impact upon people around us. So we can relax and enjoy it. Don't have to be uptight. Don't have to press. 
Uh, Carolyn and I have a friend in Texas, who, a very funny man. His name is Matt Prince. Some of you may have heard of him. And uh, he was he got into one of those situations that you, you find yourself in every once in a while, where a well-meaning Christian friend invites you over to their house to have dinner with a non-Christian friend so you can evangelize your friend's non-Christian friend. You know what I'm talking about? It's happened to me many times. It's always awkward because you don't know the person, you don't know where to start. Matt got caught in one of these situations, came over to dinner, and the <laughs> guy was just spring-loaded. He was ready to let him have it. Very hostile, non-believer. So after the pleasantries were over and they were introduced and chatted a while, this guy says to Matt, I just want you to know that I think the Bible is a bunch of garbage. He says, I think it's done more harm in the Western world than any piece of literature ever written. Matt said, well, that's an interesting point of view. Tell me, what what do you do for a living? The guy says, I'm an engineer. And and, and by the way, speaking as an engineer, that's another reason I don't like Christian faith. I am an evolutionist. And I believe that creation is nonsense. It's a faith. It has nothing to do with science. And uh, uh, it's just a, a belief without any evidence. I'm an evolutionist. Matt says, well... One way of looking at life, I suppose. Tell me, what, what do you do avocationally? You know, what you like to fish, you like to hunt. So this went on all night. Every time they would, uh, there'd be a break in the conversation. This, this man would uh, would jump, uh, take take the opportunity to make some statement about how indefensible Christianity was, and, and Matt just kept fending him off. And finally, at the end, they're walking out the door. They said goodbye to their host and hostess. Of course, he. The host was just, uh, he was, he was <laughs> totally frustrated because Matt hadn't shared the gospel with this, with this man. As they're walking out the front door, it's actually Abner walking out the front door. The guy says, one other thing about religion. And Matt put his arm around him and he said, friend, he said, all night you've been talking about God and the church and the Bible and religion. He said, what are you, some kind of religious nut? <laughs> The guy threw his head back and laughed, and to make a long story short, that week, Matt called him up, asked him out to lunch, and later led this man to, man to Christ. And it, it's that kind of relaxed approach to things, I believe, that wins the hearts of people. Okay? Well, not to be argumentative. Just relax. Now, after, uh, what, 20 minutes of introduction, <laughs> let's get on to the new material here. John 15. John fifteen eighteen. Uh, this uh, this chapter belongs in what we call the upper room discourse. Uh, it's called the upper room discourse because it took place in a second story room. This was um, Jesus' last words to the disciples, and as Howard Hendricks says, last words are always lasting words. These are. Words of great significance. This, in some summation, summary form, is what Jesus wanted the, the, the disciples to know since he would soon depart, as he tells them. He, he, they are in the world. He would not be in the world much longer in his incarnate state. And now he wants to prepare them for his departure. Now, in John 15, he, he tells the apostles, and, and by extension us, everything we need to know about how to live in a hostile environment. 
It centers around three ideas. First, our relationship to Christ. Secondly, our relationship to one another within the body of Christ. And thirdly, our relationship to the world. And he sums up each sphere of influence with one word. Abide in Christ. That's our relationship to Christ. Stick to me, he says. In terms of our relationship to the body of Christ, love one another, he says. It's one of the most vital ways to give witness is is through the cohesiveness and the love of the body of Christ, the way we treat one another. So the, in, in terms of our relationship to one another, the word is love. Stick to one another. Stick to me, he says. Stick to one another. And then finally, the, the, the final section that we want to look at, beginning with verse 18, our relationship to the world. He says you're going to go into a world where they hate you, where they are hostile to you. Nevertheless, you, you are to be a witness. Abide in Christ. Love the church. Witness to the world. And in those three words, he sums up everything we need to know about what it means to be a Christian in the 20th century. Now let's begin reading with verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Now bear in mind, when he talks about the world, he's not talking about the whole world of people. He's talking about a moral order, a community within the larger community of of people that we call the world. There are some people in the world who at least at this point in their life, have no use for God. They have not made any room in their life for God. They've made no time for God. They don't care about God. That's what the Bible calls the world. Those are the same people in the book of Revelation that are called those that live on the earth. There are two moral classes in Revelation. There are those that live on the earth and there are those that live in heaven. Now, he doesn't mean that Christians have their head in the sky and they don't have their feet on the earth. He's just saying that's their perspective. They see beyond the horizon. They see unseen things. They have a a spiritual outlook, a heavenly outlook on things. But there are some who are in the world who don't. The horizon is the limit of their experience. What they see, what they touch, what they taste, what they handle, that's that's the world of reality as far as they're concerned. Now, when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about that community of people that, that see no further than the seen. If the world hates you, he says, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. Now, we we need a balance here. We are in the world. We've talked a lot about that. You can't get out of this world. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He was not sinful. He was not unrighteous, but he was the friend of sinners. That's the crowd he ran with. Hebrews says he was separate from sinners. That's talking about his, his, his vertical relationship. He was not like them morally, but he was with them physically, geographically, spatially. And so must we. We, we, we need to be out making friends of people that, that are at this point indifferent to spiritual things. We don't see their heart. That's just our perception of it. People out in the world that Jesus describes as lost sheep. We need to be finding them. We need to be befriending them. We need to be in the world. We're not of it. We're not morally like it, but but we're in it. As it is, he says, you don't belong to the world. You're not like them morally, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. And so forth. I'm not going to read the words in between because we're running out of time. Verse 26. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. But you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And now down in verse 5 of chapter 16, Now I am going to him who sent me, and yet none of you asked me, Where are you going? Because I said these things, you were filled with grief. That is, uh, he had said things about his departure. 
But I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now, just a couple of things I want you to notice. He says, you are to be my witnesses. This is said to the apostles, but it's said again and again throughout the New Testament to the those who believe because of the word of the apostles. So it's not it's not exclusively this command is not exclusively given to the apostles, it's to all of us. We are to be his witnesses, which means we need to take the initiative. We need to find the lost. There are findable people out there. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It's not a matter merely of waiting for people to ask us why we believe what we believe. We need to take the initiative. We'll talk more about that later. But the thing that we need to understand is that our witness is subsequent to another witness, the witness of the Holy Spirit. If you read this passage carefully, it says the Holy Spirit will witness and you will witness also. Now, see, we normally turn that around. We say, we witness, and the Spirit corroborates our witness. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, the Holy Spirit witnesses, and we corroborate His witness. In other words, our witness, His witness, is antecedent to ours. He witnesses first, and then we follow up, which means that people in the world are already prepared. Now, Jesus does say that the Holy Spirit comes to you, that is, to the body of Christ, to the church, and He witnesses through us to the world. But He is saying that through the body of Christ... The Spirit of God is going before to prepare the hearts of people to whom you will witness this week. And he will bear witness to three moral categories which people are inclined to dismiss. Of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin, he says, because they don't believe on me. Now that's the only sin that, that non-Christians are convinced of. He does not say that the Holy Spirit will convince them of the sin of smoking pot and throwing wild parties and doing cocaine. The Holy Spirit does not convict people of those sins. And neither should we in terms of their relationship to God. Now, as Christians, you may have responsibility, and we do have responsibility, to, to uh, establish righteous and just laws that deal with those sorts of things. But in terms of a person's relationship to God, you don't talk to them about the fact that they smoke pot. That is not what separates them from God. That may put you off and me off. But it doesn't put God off, because that's not the problem. The problem, as Jesus says so clearly, is that they do not believe on me. That's the issue that separates us. So we must not go out and sit in judgment on people who do unchristian things. After all, if they're not Christians, they may be the only thing that gives them anything to live for. Why take that away from them? See what I'm saying? What we need to do is tell people about the one thing that does separate them from God, and that is the sin of unbelief. They don't believe on him whom, whom God has sent. You see? That's the problem. That's what separates them from God. By the way, the word that's translated convict here means to convince, basically. It's not merely that God uh, uh, arouses their conscience. They, their conscience is uh, convinced. They know. By the way, that's why people get so angry. Now, sometimes people get angry because we're discourteous or rude and uh, if that's the case, then we, we deserve their anger. But there are some times when people will blow sky high when you talk to them about the gospel. And the reason is 
not because you have said it improperly, but because their conscience is already goaded. Remember what uh, what God said to, to Paul when he was on his way to Damascus, and he was ready to kill all the Christians, and the Lord appeared to him, and he said, Hey, Peter, or Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goad, isn't it? See? The, the, the Holy Spirit is the goad of God. He was, he was giving Paul the, a jab every once in a while. And, and that's what makes people angry. I've talked to, to people about Christ and they just blow up. And I, and I say, it's easy to get hurt. We mustn't, as, as we saw from Second Timothy. We must be patient. We must be gentle with them. When they blow, I think our response ought to be, I, I can see you feel very strongly about this. Can, can you tell me why? And usually you'll find out that somewhere along the line, uh, they've become convinced of the truth that, that, that you're relating to them. They know it's true. They know. They know. See? Because there's this antecedent witness. He will convince the world of sin, of unbelief, of righteousness, Jesus says, because, they, because I go to my Father and you will see me no more. Jesus was the one perfect Example of righteousness in the world. He was absolutely righteous. He never did sin. And people looked at him and they longed for what he had. Now I think what Jesus is saying is not only does the Holy Spirit convict people of the gravity of sin, but of the possibility of righteousness. They long for it. They have written in the heart a desire to be what what. What God intends them to be, they, they don't identify it as that. But inside, they have a standard of righteousness that they know that they don't measure up. They want it. They long for it. And then third, the certainty of judgment. The gravity of sin, the possibility of righteousness, and the certainty of judgment. They know that there is a, 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 there will be a comeuppance. That one of these days, there will be an accounting for the way they've lived their lives. You don't have to tell people that. Remember the story I've told half a dozen times here about uh, David Frost and the man with the hat who crumples it and walks through the door to hell. They know. They know. They know. You don't have to convince them. See? So, you, you see, this makes the task so much easier to know that he has gone before, that his witness uh, precedes us, and that he's prepared the hearts of, of people that, that we are to minister to. And then he says, you will witness also. We are to, to take the initiative. We're not merely to wait until people seek us out. We are to seek and to save the lost. And we've talked about that several times in the course of this series. It entails, first of all, getting to know unchurched people, non-Christians, unbelievers. That means you, you may have to break out of your comfortable circle of friends and begin to, to make friends of people that, that don't know the Lord Jesus. That means you may have to go where they are. Jesus did. He, he didn't wait for them to come to him. He didn't hang up a shingle on his uh, front door. It said, Messiah here, counseling done cheap. He, he went out on the streets and, and he sought them. Uh, we are engaged in a rescue operation. That's really what the word salvation means. Salvation is one of those words that's been evacuated of meaning. It's become a theological term to us and nothing more. But salvation means to deliver we're in the deliverance business. We're rescuing people. Just uh, we got a number of people in our congregation, Ray York and, and uh, Bob Klein and others that are in the search and rescue uh, operation here in Idaho. And if you get lost up there in the mountains, they'll come get you. They don't wait for you to find them. They go find you. 
and, and that's, that should be our mentality. It should be our attitude as well. We need to seek and to save those that are, that are lost. And when we find someone who wants to be found, what, what do you say? Well, let, let me, um, in the few minutes that I have left, take you through the, the, the presentation that I make to people. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to do this because I've said over and over again that, that witness is not a matter of, of getting your patter down pat and developing a technique or some kind of mechanism. It, it has to come through your own personality. You need to think through ways to present the gospel to people that are uniquely you. Furthermore, I think we do live, as people say, in a post-Christian era. Although there are many, many churches, there are a lot of people out there in the world that are thoroughly turned off to Christian things. And they have already discarded Christian faith as they conceive it because they think they understand what all the words mean. One of the problems is that our language... You know, we have a kind of a Protestant Latin that we speak that nobody in the world can understand. We sound like Shakespearean actors instead of 20th century people. And uh, our language is defunct. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And so I, we've got to be creative in the way we go about this. The Lord was so creative. You stop it. He was so offbeat when you think about it. We are so uh, explicit in the way we explain the gospel. He was so bleak. Really, he was. The woman at the well is a good example. This dear woman shows up at the well, and uh, Jesus says to her, Can I have a drink? And she says, Why are you talking to me? You're a Jew, and, and you're a man. And Jews don't talk to Samaritans, and men don't talk to women. He just broke all, right through all those cultural barriers, and he started talking to her. Roused her interest. And Jesus says, Well, he said, If, if you just knew who I am, you would ask me, and I, I'd give you living water, and you'd never be thirsty again. And she said, oh, Lord, give that to me, because I have to come here every day to drink water. He said, oh, no, 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 we're not talking about water out of this well. We're talking about a different kind of well, a well of water that will spring up into you and be a, a source of life to you and, and satisfy your longings. And, and uh, he says, go, go bring your husband. She said, oh, I, I don't have one. He says, yeah, you're right. She'd been married a couple of times. She finally just gave up on that. Uh, that was a dead loss, and she was just living with some man at the time. And, and uh, that didn't, didn't bother the Lord. He, he, he just kept throwing out little, little teasers, little lines, drawing her in. He's so loving, so gentle, and so sensitive, and, and tailored exactly for her needs. You see, And that's the way we've got to approach this thing, not, not with canned approaches. I remember talking to a Jewish student one time in a coffee shop, at the uh, university where I was working. And he said, I just, uh, I started sharing the gospel with him. He said, oh, well, I've heard all that. So the last time I heard it, the person who gave it to me gave me the distinct impression that he was looking at someone about five feet behind my head. You know, we, we just sort of get into our little spiel and we give it to people without really being sensitive to, to who they are. Now, all of that is just by way of saying that I always uh, am reluctant to give uh, a scheme. But it helps people. All right? And this is what I do. Um, this is not used by permission. <coughs> I, I have a four-fold outline that I follow because I think outlines are helpful to keep you on track. 
If you don't have an outline, you do what I'm doing this morning, you ramble. So uh, you need an outline. The first thing I talk about is uh, what man is. And I draw a circle like this. And I, I say, you know, uh, uh, all, all of us have within a, a longing for something. We don't know what it is. We're growing up, we think it's uh, some kind of physical achievement, doing well in athletics, or uh, we think it's sexual, or we think it's uh, uh, academic to achieve uh, intellectually. And we think somehow we'll fill that up, and we spend a lot of our life just, just trying to put something in that hole that's in our life. We think that'll be filled up when I get married, or that'll be filled up when I graduate from college. Or that hunger that I have will be assuaged when I, when I make it uh, in terms of my business or when I have my first child or whatever. But it never is. It never is. And because most of the men that I talk to are, are in their 40s and, and early 50s, I usually at this point talk about the 40-year itch because I'm convinced that the 40-year itch or the male menopause or whatever you want to call it, Essentially, is it grows out of that hunger, that deep hunger that we have for something that, that, that nothing can fill. And I quote Augustine words, Augustine's words, Oh God, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Because basically, the, the only thing that will fill that hunger is God. He's the only one. We were made for God. He created that vacuum, that, that God-shaped space in our life. He's the only one that can fill it. Let me just talk a bit about what we are and, and what we need, and then I'll talk about what God is. Here we are with our God-shaped vacuum, and which is really nothing more than a yearning for God. And the amazing thing is that God yearns for us. Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is seeking people to worship Him. He's reaching out to us. He's not playing hard to get. He's not trying to hide. He's, he's trying to find us, bring us in. He's a seeking and saving God. He, he loves you more than anything else in the world. He wants to know you. And, and that, that deep uh, space, that yearning in your heart is answered by God's yearning. He wants to come and, and live in your life and, and fill you. And the problem is what the Bible calls sin. It, it's our indifference to God. The basic problem is not the fact that we, we have sinned in the past. That's been taken care of. The problem is, is that we don't either know that God is seeking us or we don't want God if we know it. We're going in the other direction. Now, you need to understand what God did. And here I talk about the cross. I point out that God is the creator. He made us. And even though we've determined to go our own way, he, he, he goes after us. And uh, the illustration I use is of a man making a, a, a little man out of wood, and uh, he has the capacity to give him life, like Pinocchio, and, and uh, the moment he gives him life, the man turns around and sasses his creator. I don't know what you would do, but I know what I would do. I'd cuff the thing in the mouth and break it in half and throw it in the fire. But God didn't do that. God became a man. 
And then I just talk about the incarnation, what it meant for God to become a man and walk on this earth and to give up his life for us. He was, as John in, in, in the New Testament said, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You know where that comes from? It was all the way back into the Old Testament when God drew a picture for the human race so they could see what it meant for the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. When someone back in those days wanted to, to know God, he came to a little tent or a, later on a building in, in Jerusalem and he brought his little lamb and, and he put his hands on the head of the lamb and he leaned the, his entire weight on the lamb and, and, he, and he confessed his sins and then that lamb was taken and slaughtered and in that, pic, in that picture he's shown what God intended to do when he came in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the lamb of God that took away our sin. So that there's nothing that separates us from God. Nothing. Except our indifference to God. And then fourth, what man must do. So the emphasis here is what man is, what God is, what God did, what man must do. Very easy to to remember. And basically what man must do is respond. If, If someone says to you, I love you, it's most inappropriate to just... Stand there. You've got to do something. You either either have to reject that love or you have to choose to respond to it. And the Bible says, As many as received him, to them gave he the authority to be a son of God. You want to be a son of God? All you have to do is receive him. And I like to give people a chance to to make that decision. I don't twist arms, but I I, I usually introduce this whole topic by saying, do you have any interest in spiritual things? And, and normally they'll say, yeah, I do. And they'll talk about it a little bit. And they'll say, yeah, you know what it means to be a real Christian? And most of the times they'll say, yeah, yeah, I know. And I say, well, tell me, what, what does it mean? Well, you have to go to church. You have to keep the golden rule. You have to believe in Jesus. Well, a lot of people think that. Can I tell you how to become a real Christian? Sure. I go through this. And then when it's all over, I say, does that make any sense to you? Would you like to receive Christ? If they say no, then I say, can I, can I ask why? Is there some reason, you know, is there something more I can explain? If they say no, no, I'm, I'm not interested, then I say, well, all right, let's talk about something else. But let's get together again and talk about it. Most people reject Christ not for intellectual reasons, but for moral reasons. Will you file that away somewhere? Jesus said that, or John said that, in the context of one of Jesus' discourse in John 3. Men come... Do not come to light because they love the darkness. I don't worry about all the, the, uh, the intellectual objections that people have. There are answers to 99% of those anyway. But that's not the problem. That's not the problem. The problem is that down deep inside, there's a resistance turning over, to turning over our will to someone else. That's the problem. And you can't force that. You have to wait for the Spirit of God to, to touch that part of a person's life and begin to appeal to them. So I don't force. I don't push. But I, but I do try to make another contact so that we can talk further because I find that in the interim, things happen to people's thinking. The Spirit of God works on them. Don't push, but just persistently love them. Now, uh, I'm out of time. I'm way out of time. But uh, let me just say this. Be available. That's the most important thing. Just be available. Tell God right where you are. The whole thing scares me to death. You know, I, yeah, it's just the thought of sharing your faith terrorizes me. But that's all right. Everybody's afraid. I don't know why we're afraid. We just are. 
That is normal. Don't worry about that. Just let God know you're available. Love Him. Worship Him. And wait for Him to begin to put you in situations where it's much easier for you to, to share your faith. And then take the initiative to do it. When you, when you approach Christian witness from that standpoint, amazing things begin to happen. You never know what's going to happen. It's, it's God then who, who orders your uh, schedule and, and sets things up so that, that, you can, that, that you spend your time strategically. The best illustration of that, in my mind, is the story of the garrison maniac in, in the Gospels, which you women are studying this, this week. It's an amazing story. Jesus says to the disciples, let's go over to the other side, to the Decapolis, the ten Greek cities, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which were kind of quasi-Jewish. They, they were mostly Greek, but they, there were a lot of Jews living in that area. And Jesus hadn't gone through that region yet, so he says to the disciples, let's get in the boat, let's go over to the other side, because they haven't heard the gospel over there. So they get in the boat, you know the story, the Disciples are rowing, and the storm comes, and the boat almost sinks. And it was just—it was a terrible night for the disciples. The Lord stills the storm. They get to the other side. It's pitch black, and out of the tombs comes this raging maniac. Matthew says that he was so. Uh, Matthew says there were two, as a matter of fact. And he says there were two. There were, he was so strong, the, the leader of the two, that they would bind him with chains, and he'd break the chains. And he used to terrorize people that came through that region. <laughs> Here's this. Dark sky, no moon, pitch black. They get out of the boat. They, you know, they were, they'd been adrenalized from the storm. They get out of the boat, and here they encounter this man, most least likely candidate for evangelism you'd ever imagine. This wild, crazy, raging man comes down out of the tombs. You know the story, Jesus casts the demons out. They go into the pigs. The pigs you know, they are drowned, and, and uh, the man says, uh, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no, you go back and you tell people what great things God has done for you. And then you know what Jesus did? He got back in the boat and he rode back across the Sea of Galilee. And as far as we know, he never went back to that region again until shortly before the cross when he went through Perea and there were large numbers of believers in that region. How did he get that way? Because of the garrison maniac. See, that's the way the Lord ordered his life. He, he says to the disciples, let's go evangelize those cities. He never said one word in those cities for about six months after that. Didn't have to because God had another plan. Let me tell you, when, when you start operating by faith, you start counting on God to get you to the right place at the right time and you make yourself available, you'll see the same kind of results. Maybe not as spectacular. Maybe you won't even see them. But there will be results. God will do exceeding abundantly above anything you could ever ask or think. Just make yourself available. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you have given us the privilege of uh, being part of your, your saving uh, uh, ministry here on, on this earth. You could very well have evangelized through angels or through some other means. But you've given to us the word of reconciliation. We have found the ultimate good thing in you. And, and we want to share it with others. We know that we're surrounded by people that, uh, who, who have on the surface no interest in spiritual things, but yet who are longing and, and lonely and hurting and desperate. We, we want to be used of you.
to introduce those, uh, those people to the good news. We ask that you'd use us. And may I might take just a moment to say to all of you that are sitting here, at any time on Sunday morning, we're aware of the fact that there are many here who do not yet know the Lord Jesus. You've heard the gospel this morning. You can respond to it. Would you receive the Lord, to use the biblical term? Jesus said, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You can receive him. Just by a simple act of invitation, you can ask him into your heart. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Be the Lord of my life. Be what I need for all of life. Now, if you pray that prayer, will you share it with someone? Will you tell someone close to you or uh, someone that you know is concerned about you so they can help you to grow? Again, Lord, we we thank you for all that you are to us. We thank you for this time together this morning around fellowshipping around your word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.